We live in the world, which is headed and run by the prince of the power of the air. But we live by the Spirit, discerning the times. For he who is spiritual discerns all things. Sharpen your discernment. Build your faith. Listen to the Word and World Team. Minister the Word of God through conversational theology, piercing the darkness of this present evil age. Hello darkness, my old friend. I've come to talk with you again. Because a vision softly creeping left its seeds while I was sleeping. And the vision that was planted in my brain still remains within the sound of silence. Okay, well, welcome back. This is Hampton Keithley with Bob Brandon, and what's a little different today is I'm actually with Bob Brandon. You're two feet from me. <coughs> two feet instead of... Uh, 900 miles. <laughs> yeah, it's a little different. I drove, we left Kansas. Well, I left Dallas. It was 102 last week. Then we left Kansas yesterday. It was 102 the, the day before. And I drive up here and it was 52 when we got here. <laughs> a little more pleasant. Yes. We pay the price in the winter, but I'd prefer this. Oh, I agree. And I'd, I'd also prefer be, being sitting side by side like we are. Um, but the main question I want to ask you this morning, Hampton, as we get started is, are you excited? I am. I am. <laughs> I, have to, I have to say, I can't, I know I've told at least three or four people in the past week that Marie Antoinette did not say, let us eat cake. <laughs> okay. I actually wanted to start out with that. Here's why. Isn't that a perfect example of the, uh, what do we call it? Like the social imaginary. Yes. Yeah. Because uh, I was right along there with you. Mm -hmm. If I don't read this stuff, I just assume that's what happened. I think everybody in our culture assumes that's what happened. And it turns out to be not true at all. Right, that was yeah. made up by Rousseau. You can track the footnotes uh, for all of that. That was written in his Confessions. It, he stated it when Marie Antoinette would have been not even a teenager, still in Austria. It had nothing to do with reality, but it fit the, times. the narrative. It fit the narrative. So there you go. It's come down through the centuries to us now, and <clears throat> you know, even as we had. You arrived last night to our house, and we had some conversation last night, but I wonder, in a similar vein, how many people, if they pick up or hear referred to the, um, like, JAMA, Journal of American Medical Association. Right. How many people assume, oh, well, yeah, that's the way it is. That's good medical research. Almost none of that is true that you read in the medical journals. I know that sounds like such a fantastic over-exaggeration. It's not. If you dig in and see how medical studies 
that touch on pharmaceuticals, not necessarily other studies. Like if you're doing some structural study in orthopedics or something, that's probably legit. But you you have anything to do with pharmaceuticals in the medical journals, it's not even... Those studies are not conducted anywhere near how you would think they would be conducted. So it's just the social imaginary. You just assume that that is real, that that is all controlled by what they call a sponsor, who would be like a Pfizer, would be considered a sponsor. And they do the study, and they control all the data. And what you read in the journal is nothing other than what they want you to see. It has nothing to do with the reality of the study they conducted. Here's another, for instance, touching on the social imaginary. The um, current vaccine is really a study that's going on. So who comprises, might you guess, the IRB, so the Internal Review Board, that conducts the trial for Pfizer? Pfizer does. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're conducting their own, quote, study. It's their own referees, right? I right, mean, how, right. Much, yeah. how much more crooked could you get? Yeah. <clears throat> but anyway, the whole, the whole point was I enjoyed you bringing up that Marie Antoinette scenario because it's a really good example of the social imaginary. And for those who don't know, the social imaginary was a term that Carl Truman used in his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Right. So it's, it's sociologists will use that term today to describe a culture. You know, what, what you and I daily think about things. It, it's literally <clears throat> a very close parallel to uh, what you would read in the Bibles, particularly out of the author John, on the world, what he means by the world. That phrase is very close to what the sociologists today would call the social imaginary. Right. So, so anyway, we were in not even quite the middle. I say the middle, but right? it's not quite the middle of uh, the French Revolution. And we were talking about Marie. Let's just pick it up right there. That's about where we left off. Okay. So I'm reading, just for our our listeners again, from a book called Demonic by Ann Coulter. The subtitle is How the Liberal Mob is Endangering America. This was, I forget, this is at least 10 years old. But it's a very good book. It's very well researched. And I, I wanted originally to read it, you know, these two chapters on the French Revolution, just kind of read straight through it, but I would uh, tend to pick out, you know, her her jabs. Right. But they're so, so, they're <laughs> so woven in there, I, it's almost hard to skip them. So we'll pick it up. We had just gotten to Marie Antoinette, so we'll get a running start at this. Marie Antoinette never uttered the words, let them eat cake. <laughs> Fittingly, that phrase came from the revolutionary's philosopher. Here's our favorite guy, Hampton, Jean-Jacques Rousseau. The only reason I feel confident in pronouncing his name that way is because I've heard it so many times. But whenever I'm pr- pronouncing a French word, I, I have no idea if I'm saying it even close to how the French would say it. So I apologize ahead of time. 
Anyway, <clears throat> that was uh, quoted from Rousseau, who claimed he overheard it on the lips of some nameless princess. This was written in his Confessions sometime before 1769, back when Marie Antonia was still a preteen making mud strudels in Austria. See, you can't, you can't read her without... You have to add that part. But the masses were upset by a hailstorm that had damaged the crops and impaired the food supply. So the French seized on this myth and it's lived on forevermore. Right? That, that's yeah. how the social the imaginary works. So <clears throat> the mob was riled up. There was no time for calm reflection or consideration of the evidence. And so on October 5th, 1789, angry fishmongers and other market women stormed the Versailles Palace intent on offing the queen. Called 8,000 Judiths, the rabble included some men <laughs> dressed like women. They were armed with pikes, axes, and a few cannons, hollering that they would cut the queen's pretty throat and tear her skin to bits for ribbons. Rallying outside the palace all day, by evening the rabble was half naked, having taken their clothes off on account of the rain, much like the audience at a Rage Against the Machine concert. That guy's actually a good, really good guitar player. <clears throat> Early in the morning, around 2 a.m., a gaggle of women broke into the palace. Decapitating two guards on the way, they made a wild dash toward Antoinette's bedroom, shouting, Where's the whore? Death to the Austrian. We'll wring her neck. We'll tear her heart out. I'll fry her liver, and that won't be the end of it. I'll have her thighs. I'll have her entrails. So <clears throat> when I read that, you know, it sounds like just propaganda. Those are all quotes. Those are all footnoted. There were eyewitnesses, obviously, to that. And that came and they wrote they, what happened. Yeah, so, yeah, right. They wrote their reflections on what happened. <clears throat> the dulcet shrieks of the fishmongers <laughs> called to mind George Washington exhorting his men Remember, officers and soldiers, that you are free men fighting for the blessings of liberty, that slavery will be your portion and that of your posterity if you do not acquit yourselves like men. So that's her contrast between the American Revolution and the French Revolution, which <clears throat> is a really interesting contrast in history. But that's not our point <clears throat> at this moment. The Queen fled her bedroom one step ahead of the howling mob. The crazed women proceeded to smash all the mirrors in the queen's boudoir, slash her bed to bits. After a standoff between the palace and the mob, the king capitulated and the royal family was marched to the Tuileries Palace in Paris. So is that Tuileries? That sounds about right. I'm, I mean, I'm saying Tuileries, but it's... It's two, I think. Tuileries. <clears throat> Uh, by triumphant hoi polloi. That one I got right. Because that's a, that's a Greek term. <laughs> Leading the well, Greek term for the many. Yes. Right? So we would translate it the crowd. Yeah, the masses. <clears throat> Leading the procession were the heads of the decapitated guards bouncing along on pikes. 
the king and his family were effectively put under house arrest at the Tuileries with a guard stationed in Marie Antoinette's room at all times, even when she dressed and slept. The family would never see Versailles again. The king signed a new constitution, relinquishing most of his power. The French people... Okay, this is her, right? This is just Anne now. And the French people lived in liberty and happiness from that moment ever after. <laughs> and then she goes, no, wait, it didn't happen that way. <clears throat> here's here's an, a very interesting subsection. These are some famous people coming up here. The political clubs, once gentlemen's debating societies, suddenly assumed actual political importance during the revolution. The Jacobin Club went from being a prestigious institution of distinguished individuals with little power to a motley collection of left-wing radicals that launched the monstrous revolutionary leader Maximilian Robespierre. Soon the respectable members quit the Jacobin Club, leaving only the reprobates behind. Okay, here's Anne, Anne again. Much as, much as happened to the American Bar Association in the 1980s. Oh my. <laughs> On the one-year anniversary of the storming of the Bastille, some of the political clubs built model Bastilles so that they could again <laughs> be, be sacked by the people. If there had been a Franklin Mint back then, the storming of the Bastille chess sets would have been a bestseller. But, you know, it's funny when you read that, but I'll bet that would have happened. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> so the rabble, often led by the Jacobins, proceeded to smash every trace of the past. Remember reading about that in Truman? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, so they proceeded to smash every trace of the past. Religion, law, the social order, eventually even the weights and measuring system, and, most absurdly, the calendar. Here's what's interesting to me about that. So this is just teasing for, you know, some podcast down the road. When I hear that, that they wanted to change the calendar. So I ref instantly reflect on the biblical passages that describe the future Antichrist. And it says he will make changes in law and times. Right? And that, right. that'd be a reference to the calendar. Yeah. Here you go. Right? And yeah. it almost makes the hair on your neck stand up. Well, we've already changed it from... B.C., before Christ, mm -hmm. and A.D., year of our Lord. Uh, oh, it's like the common know, era. Yeah, the common era and before the common era. Right. I always just call it before the Christian era. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Put Jesus back you in there. their own game. <laughs> but isn't that interesting? Yeah. yeah. So on November 2nd, 1789, just a month after the storming of the Tuileries, the assembly declared everything owned by the Catholic Church to be property of the state. Three months later, the assembly severed the French Catholic Church's relations with the Pope, dismissed about 50 bishops, dissolved 
all clerical vows, reorganized the church under the civil constitution with priests to be elected by popular vote and required all the clergy to swear an oath of loyalty to the state. Covenants and... Didn't Hitler do something similar? Not sure. Maybe. I can't remember, but yeah. Convents and monasteries were seized and turned into prisons to house any recalcitrant royals and priests. A few years later, the assembly would pass a law forbidding priests to be seen in public wearing clerical garb. Having a general idea where this godless fanaticism was headed, the royal family attempted to flee Paris on June 20th, 1791. They got lost stopped to ask directions from a young boy whom the king tipped with a gold Louis d'Or. The boy recognized the king from his visage on the coin and quickly ratted out the the fleeing royals to the revolutionary authorities. The royal family was marched back to the Tuileries under a rain of stones with effigies of the king dangling from trees along their path. Remember, he's already acceded all his power. He's already surrendered. If he wasn't so generous, they might have made it out. (laughs) It would have. A few months after the royal family's flight, the leftist Jacobins and the comparatively moderate Girondists forced the king to sign yet another new constitution. They were there writing constitutions by the week. Louis XVI was reduced to a mere figurehead and a prisoner. The mob had no fear of punishment, certainly not from Louis XVI, the David Dinkins of kings. So they exploded in animalistic fury. I gotta pause there for a second. When the mob realizes there aren't gonna be any consequences, they just go ballistic. It doesn't calm them down. It energizes them. Right? Didn't we see that in the last few summers? Right in Seattle. Oh, yeah. The, when they realized... The going into stores and stealing purses and shoes. Yeah, and they just go crazy. So, which reminds me... Let me just step in there for one, one more time. The real purpose for, for going through this is a couplefold. But one of them is... Uh, remember the passage in Thessalonians, at some point, God will remove the restrainer right. from history, and it's the world's just going to go crazy. If you think it's crazy now, just imagine when he removes the restrainer. And so it's the same principle. When the, when the mob realizes there's no restraint, they just go crazy. So uh, the bourgeoisie had riled up the masses to storm the Bastille and Versailles. Now they would pay the price. As French... As historian Eric Dershmead says, the king had been the only constitutional instrument that could stand up to the extremists. But now the moderates had opened the door to raging madmen willing to use mob brutality. What would restrain today, literally today, any... Anything the left wanted to do, what would restrain them? If there were consequences and punishment. Okay, but is there? 
There's not. There's no. not. So, let's go raid this guy's house. Let's go, right? All the right. headlines you see today are because there's... It's not because people are guilty. It's because there is no restraint of what they want to accomplish. Well, who was it that said it? all that has to happen for evil to succeed is for good men to do nothing? Yeah. Yeah, so where, where are our good judges? Where are our senators? Where's our leaders? You know, they're, they're the swamp rules. So, on August 10th, 1792, Parisians were out of sorts over more military setbacks in France's war with Austria and Germany, not to mention the absence of an exit strategy. (laughs) So an armed mob stormed the Tuileries, forcing the royal family to flee to the National Assembly for safety. From there, the weak king, frightened by the sound of cannon fire, ordered the Swiss guards who were defending him to surrender. (laughs) I have to read her comment on that. She goes, this strategy known as unilateral surrender would later become the cornerstone of the Democratic Party's national security policies. (laughs) Anyway, refusing to believe such an insane command the guards, commander, went to see the king for himself, telling him, the rabble's on the run. We must vigorously pursue them. Minutes ticked by, with Louis XVI unable to make a decision. And this was the king, after all, who had written in his diary the day of the storming of the Bastille, July 14th, nothing Finally, he repeated his surrender order. The incredulous commander demanded that it be put in writing. The king wrote, We order our Swiss to put down their arms immediately and withdraw to their barracks. Louis. Ordered by the king to surrender, more than 600 Swiss guards were savagely murdered. The mobs ripped them to shreds, mutilated their corpses, Again, this is all footnoted. The women lost to all sense of shame, said one of the surviving witnesses, were committing the most indecent mutilations on the dead bodies from which they tore pieces of flesh and carried them off in triumph. Children played kickball with the guards' heads. Every living thing in the Tuileries was butchered or thrown from windows by the hooligans. Women were raped before being hacked to death. The Jacobin Club, the MSNBC of the French Revolution, (laughs) demanded that the piles of rotting, defiled corpses surrounding the Tuileries be left to putrefy in the street for days afterward as a warning to the people of the power of the extreme left. Remember the command in Deuteronomy, uh, like to take a body down, right? Mm-hmm. After you, you know, don't defile the human corpse. Yeah. This bestial attack, it was later decreed, would be celebrated every year as the, this is what they called that day, the festival of unity and the indivisibility of the republic. 
The festival of unity. Yeah. The slaughter of people. Oh my gosh. She, I gotta read her again. Cause okay. she is, she goes, it would be as if families across America delighted in the annual TV special, a Manson family Christmas. <laughs> she is so bad. Back at the National Assembly, the king was arrested and the last flickers of the monarchy extinguished. King Louis XVI would henceforth be known as Citizen Louis Capet. This time, the royal family... <clears throat> was locked up in the filthy temple prison. Mobs gathered outside night and day, refining their nuanced political philosophy by chanting death to the king. <laughs> so, but in, in a broader context, remember the focus of, of our study on this podcast. I mean, it's not as if the people hadn't suffered under French rule. Right. Well, I mean, there it, were lots of. They had they hungry had poor a, people. Yeah, they had, you know, a real reason to be rebelling. Um, I mean, it was legitimate. It's just the way they carried it out was so terrible. But you know, French government had not been good for centuries. There, there were changes that needed to be made, but they they had them all at their fingertips by that point, and they went ballistic anyway. <clears throat> Executive authority was vested in the new national convention elected by all the people, including foreigners such as Thomas Paine. Mm -hmm. He was an interesting character in the French Revolution. Uh, but no women, which is the only fact taught about the French Revolution in American schools today. Maximilien de Robespierre future president of the convention was the first among equals in the revolution. The engine of the terror who argued following our friend Rousseau that a republic of virtue could only be achieved by virtue combined with terror. How's the logic work on that? Yeah, that doesn't work. <clears throat> Alas, the French got mostly terror. He and his fellow Jacobins took the seats high up at the convention, for which they were nicknamed the Montanards, or the Mountaineers. So we're nowhere near the real atrocities of this revolution yet, but we're getting there. With the royal family rotting in the temple prison, the mob ran wild. Depressed by the news that their army's defeat at Verdun the French went on a murderous rampage in the fall of 1792, known as the September Massacres. Propagandists of the revolution warned that traitors to the revolution were planning a comeback from their jail cells and must be given prompt justice. Does that sound like... Orwellian's doublespeak, prompt justice... Does that, that wasn't justice. Does that sound like Trump? Traitors to the revolution, right? Listen, listen, propagandists of the revolution warned that traitors to the revolution were planning a comeback. Yeah. From their, bit. right? Yeah. Uh-oh. Revolutionary star 
Jean-Paul Marat wrote in his newspaper titled L'Ami du Poupel, Friend of the People, Let the Blood of the Traitors Flow. This is the only way to save the country. On September 2nd, 1792, a revolutionary mob on the outskirts of Paris surrounded a caravan of 24 clergymen being transported to prison and began slashing at the priests through the window of the carts. One assailant brandished his bloody sword toward the onlookers and shouted, So this frightens you, does it? You cowards, you must get used to the sight of death. At some point, an ascetic priest emerged and tried to calm the ruffians, a few of whom were his own parishioners. He was promptly hacked to death. <laughs> Again, even there they almost have, I mean, not a justification for murder, but I mean, the, the Catholic Church at that time was not, right? They're not really teaching the Bible to yeah. the people. You know, they, they had some just causes. But the solution isn't murder, everybody. The rest of the mob joined in the slaughter until all the carts were dripping with blood. The gruesome caravan full of mangled carcasses loped along to the prison, where another crowd was waiting to butcher any priest who had managed to survive the first attack. So... There's more of that sort of stuff. I'm going to skip over that. But they're, they're murdering the clergy everywhere, all the time, throughout France. Um, here's another famous French Revolution guy. Well, read this paragraph. After the first batches of clergymen had been killed, the revolutionaries decided to hold mock trials. We've seen any of those. Yeah. <clears throat> For those who remained. One by one, the priests were called to a makeshift court presided over by a grimy sans-culottes ruffian named Citizen Maillard. Most of the sans-culottes were lawyers and journalists. Those groups constantly go together. <laughs> Is that what she said? <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. Okay. She, like, uh, dressed like peasants without the culottes or knee breeches worn by gentlemen, but Maillard was the real thing. He ordered the priests to swear loyalty to the state. Not one would take the heretical oath. And so, one after another, the clerics were dragged to the courtyard, sliced to pieces. Their bodies were dumped in fields or down a well, where 70 years later, 119 skeletons were discovered. This account was provided by the only survivor of the massacre, Abby Sicard. One deputy of the convention, Jean-Denis Langenet, estimated that 8,000 Frenchmen were executed on September 2nd alone. Another deputy, Jean-Baptiste Louvet de Couvray, I'm sure I'm saying those correctly, Put the number at twenty eight thousand. Rabid in band. one day. In one day, they're just murdering people. <clears throat> Rabid bands of men continued the savagery for the next five days, busting into nearly every prison in Paris. They're already in prison, right? It's, right. 
um, and carving of the inmates. Not just priests, but all prisoners were killed. The poor, the mad, women, old men, even young girls, waiting their turns, locked in their cells. The prisoners would hear the screams of those who preceded them. The mob spared only two prisons, one for prostitutes and one for debtors. The, she goes, the mob's base. <laughs> At one prison, uh, the name of this prison, La Concierge, 378 of 488 prisoners were murdered in one day. The killers chopped up humans without pause, except to eat and drink the provisions brought them by their wives to help the men in their hard labors. That's a quote and footnoted. Really? Revolutionary women would sit on the sidelines, enjoying the butchery and cheering the men on. As the bodies piled up, women would poke the corpses and make ribald jokes. Some... <clears throat> grabbed severed body parts such as ears to wear as decorations. One revolutionary thug carved into a nobleman's chest pulled out the heart and asked, do you want to see the heart of an aristocrat? He then squeezed some of the blood from the heart into his wine goblet, drank it, and invited the others to drink from it too. One young girl was forced to drink human blood to save the life of her father. So all, all footnoted, but I mean, how do we pause to elaborate that once you remove restraint, mm -hmm. right? You're seeing, when I had a friend describe this, I had gone over this years ago with a, <clears throat> a church group and, you know, you're seeing human nature in full relief. Right. It's horrifying. Yeah, yeah. The great attraction of the September massacres, according to French historian Lenote, was the grotesque execution of Marie Gredeler, a person accused of murder. She was bound to a post, her breasts chopped off, and her feet nailed spread eagle to the ground and a bonfire lit between her legs. But for my money, the most, this is Anne again, the most chilling murder of the September massacres was that of Princess Lambale. This wealthy young widow had been Marie Antoinette's best friend and superintendent of the Queen's household. For the Jacobins, she was the Carl Rove of the Louis XVI administration. The mob accused the prudish and sensitive princess of all sorts of monstrous depredations, including a, including a lesbian affair with the queen. So, I mean, they, they completely brutalized this, this woman. I'm going to skip all that, but, I mean, it's terrible. But they didn't use the guillotine. That's coming. That's coming later. Yeah. Well, they were just chopping up with swords. And, and that, then it, re yeah, then it really begins. The show really begins then. But that's a little bit down the road. Oh, okay. But here's a good... I want to read this one. So, um, on September 3rd, 1792, Princess Lambeau was dragged from her prison cell and brought before a revolutionary tri 
tribunal presided over by the brute Jacques Hibert. Hibert had nothing but admiration for the sacrilegious excesses of the revolution, cheerfully announcing that the universe would soon contain, this is his quote, nothing but a regenerated and enlightened, excuse me, family of atheists and Republicans. So you ever hear that phrase? This one always drives me crazy. You know how I, re- I really need to polish up on my social etiquette? Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. <laughs> well, this one, I, I have never found a way to control myself when this phrase comes up. You know, Oh, more wars have been started over religion than any other. Right. Oh, really? You know, that that's a total statement of the social imaginary, right? That that's looking at nothing accurately. How, how do atheists do concerning wars? Really well. Oh, yeah, <laughs> they do really well. So, um, anyway, they torture this lady killer and then like parade her head past uh, Marie Antoinette's cell window. Okay. I'm just not going to read that, but it's it's terrible. The convention decreed that France was a republic on September 21st, 1792. One week later, the renowned 73-year-old French author Jacques Cazot was guillotined for counter-revolutionary writings. According to two contemporaneous accounts on September 1792, a Jacobin named Philip presented a box to the Legislative Assembly containing the heads of his mother and father, whom he had said he slayed in a burst of patriotism because they refused to attend a revolutionary church. Killed his own parents. Cut their heads off. This was not a revolution that was likely to end with a motto of Anuit Keptis on its national seal. That means God has favored our undertakings. Being totalitarians, the French revolutionaries were anxious to inflict their ideas on other perfectly nice countries. In November 1792, the convention issued the Edict of Fraternity, calling on the people of other countries to overthrow their rulers. By the end of 1792, the Jacobins were demanding the king's head. Louis XVI had already tried to flee Paris, but the French wouldn't let him. The entire royal family had been held captive under constant guard behind multiple locked doors in the temple prison for four months and in the Tuileries before that. But that wasn't enough. Louis XVI was such an object of hatred for the masses that at some revolutionary clubs, members with the hideous name Louis were forced to change their names to Montanard as a tribute to the most liberal political faction. The trial of Louis XVI, or Citizen Louis Capet, took place in December 1792 before the entire national convention. Let's see how Louis' trial goes. <laughs> oh, here's back to our American patriot. 
erstwhile American patriot Thomas Paine attended as a member of the convention. Unknown to the hapless Paine, he was watching the original show trial. Citizen Capet was charged with a series of crimes that he knew, as did his accusers, he had never been party to. Of course, the principal accusation against him was treason for having been a king, though it was <laughs> not a crime to be so until that very moment. Right? So it's, I mean, we've seen that stuff. How much evidence was there actually against Trump when they... Um, held him for impeachment. Right. I mean, none. Right. Two years, how many? 60 attorneys full-time working on that? Zero evidence. Yeah. So, Robespierre was putatively opposed to capital punishment. Huh. Let's see how that works out. But like our, uh, our liberal friends... He was willing to make exceptions (laughs) on a case-by-case basis, depending on the defendant. Fiercely championing death for the king. This is the guy who's against capital punishment. Death for the king. He argued that even holding a trial was counter-revolutionary. Robespierre said that the citizen Capet was a criminal toward humanity and killing him was merely a measure of public safety. The king must die, he said, because the country must live. <laughs> and she goes, Johnny Cochran's summations made more sense. <laughs> oh my gosh. How far are we into this today, Hampton? Oh, let's see. Forty one minutes. We'll read on for a few more minutes. <clears throat> The convention debated the king's fate, much the way the UCLA faculty debated a resolution to condemn the Iraq War five days after the fall of Baghdad. After a unanimous vote of the guilt, the convention then debated whether Louis Capet would be sentenced to detention, deportation, or death. Give us the head of that fat pig, yelled the Jacobins. The nation demands his death. Thousands of sans-culottes ruffians poured into the streets during the trial, shouting for the king's death, because this is how liberals participate in civic affairs. It's, it, so you laugh when you read that, but that was last summer. The yeah. last couple summers That's were true. exactly like that. Um, some wandered inside the public seats, in the upper balconies to cheer deputies who called for death and heckle those leaning towards imprisonment. Seeing the bloodthirsty mobs in the streets, Madame Roland, a supporter of the revolution, commented wryly, what charming freedom we now enjoy in Paris. The vote inside went back and forth for 72 hours, indicating that even the French revolutionaries were more even-handed than the typical college faculty. (laughs) Finally, the king's own cousin, with the promising revolutionary name, you know how you can't make stuff up? Mm -hmm. Listen to this guy's name, Philippe Egalité. (laughs) 
swung the vote by standing and saying, I vote death. That's Louis's cousin. The convention ordered the king to be guillotined the following day. So on January 21st, 1793, Louis XVI became the only French king ever to be executed. It will not surprise close observers of the left to learn that the deputies had engaged in vote fraud with 13... <laughs> and he wrote this 10 years ago. Yeah, or more, with 13 votes cast illegally, including that of the bloodthirsty angel of death. Now here's this guy's name. The angel of death, Louis-Antoine Leon de Saint-Just, who was too young to vote, so he voted. (laughs) The night before his execution, the king said goodbye to his family, giving his children religious instruction, telling them, to forgive his assassins. Next morning at 5 a.m., he took communion. A few hours after that, the drums began. Hearing the drums signaling the coming execution, Louis XVI's priests said his blood ran cold. Arriving to take the king to the guillotine was a former priest, Jacques Roux, who had renounced his faith and joined the most radical revolutionary sect the Enregez, or the Rabid. The king handed him a package containing some personal effects and his last will and testament, asking that it be given to his wife. Rue responded, I've not come here to do your errands. I'm here to take you to the scaffold. The king was taken by cart to the guillotine, trailed by a sneering cat-calling mob. After having his hands bound, and his hair cut above the nape of his neck. King Louis XVI ascended the platform, motioned for the drummers to pause, and began to address the crowd. He said, I die innocent of all the crimes imputed to me. I pardon the authors of my death, and pray God that the blood you are about to shed will never fall upon France. But, like an audience of college liberals, the audience began shouting and the drummers resumed their banging so the king could no longer be heard. They could hear the king any old time, whereas who knew when they might get to yell and hit drums again. <laughs> Once the guillotine blade fully severed the king's thick neck, an attendant yanked the head from a basket, waved it before the crowd while making obscene gestures. The people whooped and cheered, threw their hats in the air, and lined up to dip their handkerchiefs in the king's blood. His carcass was dumped in a pit, and the body dissolved with lime. Wow. So, but here's an interesting follow-up point. Within the next year, the king's backstabbing cousin, Mr. Equality, Philip Egalite, would himself be guillotined with less illustrious final remark, Merde! Madame Roland was also executed after bowing to the Statue of Liberty next to the guillotine, saying, O oh, Liberty, what crimes are committed in your name? Thomas Paine would narrowly escape the guillotine and be imprisoned instead. On the one-year anniversary of the king's execution, the revolutionaries presided over fetes of celebration 
including one in Grasse that featured the guillotine of a Louis XVI mannequin. They had executed a king, but the French had not yet begun the reign of terror. That hasn't even started yet. Really? What's, what's called the reign of terror has not yet begun in France. The fact that after this, the terror was still to come begins to explain why all the bloody totalitarian dictatorships of the 20th century have drawn inspiration from Rousseau and the French Revolution. So maybe next time we'll do part two of the French Revolution. But you, I know it's, it's almost a labor to, to look into it, but the Bible is so insightful. And remember the uh, two things that our founding fathers really based almost everything else upon. Number one, mankind is the image of God. And so freedom, whatever government, facilitates the necessary freedom for a human being to act out, you know, that image is best. And second, that nature's fallen. Right. Human nature's fallen. And in the French Revolution, you, you could hardly have a better example of the fallen human nature. And what happens to most of them, I've got a book, you know, you can't see it in this little bookcase here, but my other bookcase in the other room, uh, a book on the French Revolution written by a famous French historian. His final summation of all those events was that the French Revolution devoured its own children. They, they almost all get guillotined. Right. Yeah. Once they learn, you can just point at your neighbor and accuse the guy of whatever you want, and it's going to be a death penalty. Well, everybody starts pointing at everybody. Robespierre gets guillotined. I mean, it. What goes around comes around. Once well, you unleash that, Louis, when he, you know, yeah. death, and then then he got guillotined. So, yeah, it's depressing reading. So more depression next time, Hampton. Okay. We're learning valuable lessons. Well, then we'll stop it now and we'll just pick it up next time. Okay. Therefore, I exhort you, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a sacrifice, alive, holy, and pleasing to God, which is your reasonable service. Do not be conformed to this present world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, so that you may test and approve what is the will of God, what is good and well-pleasing and perfect. <laughs>